Well, we're in Matthew 13 in our Bibles today. Matthew chapter 13. How do we explain the different responses to Jesus that we see in the world? To some, Jesus was a good moral teacher, a good moral example, and nothing more. To others, he was a first century Jewish radical who failed to lead a revolt against Rome. For some, his his name, Jesus Christ, is nothing more than one of their go-to cuss words, an expression for surprised disgust. And for others, like many of us here, he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, the Savior of the world, our shepherd and friend, and the one who is worthy of all of our devotion and worship. How do we explain such diverse responses to Jesus? Why is this man so polarizing? And it's not just today that he's polarizing. It's not just in our modern secularized age that Jesus is polarizing. We've been studying the gospel according to Matthew together in recent weeks. And in chapters 11 and 12, we've been seeing all kinds of different responses to Jesus' teaching and miracles. Some are amazed. Some are perplexed. Some are curious. Some are furious. Religious leaders are conspiring to kill him. We, we learn in chapter 12, verse 15, just in passing, it says, many followed him. A positive response. Of course, among those who follow him are the 12, who will be later called apostles. They've been with him from the beginning. They have left homes and businesses to follow Jesus. And yet, Jesus' own family, we saw last week at the end of chapter 12, Jesus' immediate family at that time seemed more on the outside of his ministry than inside the house where he was teaching. And as we turn to chapter 13 this week, there's also this growing crowd around Jesus, which sounds promising, but is it more than just curiosity? How do we explain the great variety of responses to Jesus? And to, to bring those kinds of questions back to us today, we could ask, what are we to make of when we share the good news with a friend and it simply bounces off of them? There's no interest whatsoever. What are we to make of those who get so angry at the mention of Jesus' name? And what about those who get interested in Jesus for a time, but then at some point lose interest in Jesus and move on? For that matter, how do we know that we have truly come to believe and are following him? And what does it take? to stick with Jesus all the way to the end? Well, it is because of questions like those that Jesus told this parable. 
Matthew 13, look down in your Bibles at verse 1. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach, and he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom... And does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Well, you probably notice that there are three main sections to our parable, or to our passage, rather. Jesus tells a parable, and then there's the discussion about why he uses parables, and then Jesus returns to the parable that he just told to explain that parable. A parable with four soils. So we'll work through this passage along the lines of four parts, and then four soils. First, there's introducing the parable. Introducing the parable. That's what Jesus does in verses 1 through 9. 
Jesus had been teaching a group of disciples in a house at the end of chapter 12, but now he goes outside and a larger crowd forms around him. In fact, it says great crowds, plural and great. Now, whether the great crowd is so big and pressing that it forces Jesus off the shore into a boat, or, or whether he gets into a boat to strategically create a beachfront amphitheater from which to teach, it is there that Jesus, verse 3 says, began to teach them in parables. Parables. Now, if you've grown up in church, uh, you don't really ever wonder what a parable is. You've been hearing them from your youth. And just like no student in school asks, what is math? You're just around it all the time. You just do it. It's the air you breathe in school. No one asks that. And so people who grow up in church really don't ask, what is a parable? But people who don't grow up in church and aren't familiar with the Bible, they probably do wonder, what is this thing exactly? It might seem like an incomplete story. It might seem like a fable with some apparent life lesson that you haven't yet figured out. A parable is a scene drawn from everyday life. Think of it as a slice of life meant to provoke thought and to teach something on a spiritual level or some things on a spiritual level. It's a made-up illustration it's like an extended allegory. The meaning and the purpose of the parable often isn't immediately obvious. And that's part of the point. They're meant to provoke thought. They're meant to make us ponder, to, to scratch our heads until we're struck by the thing. As one scholar put it, a parable is like a joke in that you either get it or you don't. But even once you think you got it, this scholar says, a parable is like an onion. You just keep peeling back the layers. And so Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 13. In fact, in Matthew 13, he tells a total of seven parables. This will occupy our future sermons. This is the first real parable in Matthew's gospel that he tells at the beginning of Matthew 13. He tells a story of a farmer throwing seed on his land, and the seed falls on four different types of soil and produces four different kinds of results with varying degrees of success. In telling the parable, notice Jesus doesn't explain what the things mean, what they represent. Not yet. He just paints a picture. A farmer throwing seed on four different types of soil with four different kinds of results. And then he just ends the telling of the parable with this even more enigmatic saying, verse 9, He who has ears, let him hear. And with that, his sermon to the crowd, for now, is done. Imagine a Sunday morning sermon here at Desert Springs Church, where I got up and I told a very brief story 
about making four pies with four different fillings. And I said, amen. And then I went and sat down in the front row. First-time visitors would think, what a weird church this is. I'm never coming back. Some regulars might say, well, that was definitely his worst sermon yet. Let's hope he's getting a migraine. Some might say, well, apparently Ryan's into baking now. Apparently we're going to hear a lot about baking. And maybe a few would stick around until after the last song and come up to ask the preacher, what was that about? What are you up to? I suspect you're up to something here, but I don't know what it is. Well, if any one of you would think it worth asking me what I was up to, suspecting I was up to something, then it would be all the more important to think that Jesus is up to something. So verse 10, the disciples, likely the 12, the the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? So here's our second part, a second I word, interlude on the purpose of parables. An interlude on the purpose of parables. The disciples' question, why speak in parables, prompts Jesus to teach on parables. Now, whether this is sometime after Jesus taught the large crowd, or it's a private conversation at the boat, within the setting at the beach, it's not clear. But what is clear is that this is a side conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples. And what does Jesus tell them about why he teaches in parables? Well, to summarize what he says succinctly, I'd put it like this. He says that parables are meant to both reveal and conceal. To reveal and conceal. They are to reveal to some while they conceal for others. Now, the disciples represent those to whom things are being revealed. They are certainly in process at this point, especially as they'll later have to come to terms with a crucified Messiah. Yes, they are in process, but they are not like the religious leaders who are out to kill Jesus, and they're not like the fickle crowds that come and go. The disciples have followed Jesus, left all for Jesus. They, they keep walking with Jesus. They're all in for the teaching. They ask follow-up questions, even sometimes when they're dumb questions. But they're not put off by the enigmatic farmer story. They want to know what Jesus is up to. To them, verse 11, the secrets of the kingdom are being revealed. The secrets of the kingdom. The kingdom. The kingdom is one way, it's Matthew's favorite way of summarizing Jesus' teaching. We've called this sermon series, The King and His Kingdom, for that reason. Jesus' message is about 
the good news of a person and a realm that has finally come. The promise of the coming king and in his kingdom was, in a sense, no secret. It was all over the Old Testament. And Jesus wasn't exactly shy or soft-spoken about the fact that he was the king. And the king and his kingdom were beginning to come. But it was a secret in that some were learning it and others were not. Some were starting to get it, starting to see it, starting to enter in, while others, while they were hearing Jesus teach and seeing him do miracles, verse 13, seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. How many of you remember the sound that the teacher on Charlie Brown made. I'm just curious, how outdated is this? The teacher on Charlie Brown sounded like this. No words, just sounds. It's brilliant. Charles Schultz was brilliant with that move. That's a funny observation. That, that's how kids often hear their teachers. They don't. They don't hear. They don't understand. It's just noise. It's usually not the teacher's fault. The teacher is usually speaking sensible words. But kids don't pay attention. It just goes in one ear and out the other. Now, on a spiritual level, because of sin, and because sin affects our cognitive abilities to discern spiritual things, we are like the kids in the classroom of a Charlie Brown cartoon. Womp, 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 womp. That's what 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 is getting at. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So there's this natural spiritual inability that we all have from birth, having been born in Adam and Eve. It'll remain that way apart from God sovereignly, powerfully revealing himself. And that's why we pray for understanding. That's why we sung a prayer, show us Christ. That's why we pray for others that God would give them eyes to see and ears to hear. Because if he doesn't, it's just wah, 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 wah. But Jesus is saying more than that here in Matthew 13. He's not just referring to natural spiritual inability. He's saying that the parables are a form of judgment to those who continue to give in to their spiritual deafness. Some are all too content to hear but not hear, to see but not really see. And Jesus insists that for them, the parables are purposefully confounding. Parables cloak 
the truth to those who don't really want to understand. And that's why Jesus quotes from Isaiah. Notice verses 14 and 15. You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed them, and so on. This is from Isaiah 6. Jesus is saying that the same dynamics of Isaiah's ministry are being played out once again in his time and in his ministry. The prophet Isaiah was called to preach to a people who had ignored previous prophets. And they ignored them so much, so long, so hard that Isaiah's ministry would actually be one of judgment on their spiritual disinterest. So he would preach to them, but rather than them really hear, there would actually grow a spiritual dullness to their hearing. So rather than us thinking that Jesus is here, being stingy with the good, good news, or that he's being merely arbitrarily selective in who gets the good news, we should remember that so many people in these days, they kept hearing him teach and kept seeing the miraculous, but very few were actually hearing and actually seeing. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 11, where Jesus had done most of his miracles, it says there. And then Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida. If the mighty works done for you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. They didn't repent. They saw and heard so much and they shrugged it off. But some, like the twelve, were we're actually beginning to see some things, actually beginning to hear some things. And to them, they would be given more in days ahead. And so, going forward, the parables that Jesus teaches have that twofold effect. They would reveal spiritual realities to some, but it would conceal spiritual realities for others, even Frustrate them as judgment for their unwillingness to listen. Well, after teaching on the purpose of parables, Jesus returns to the parable of the soils to give the interpretation. So a third part, interpreting the parable. Interpreting the parable. Now Jesus, in interpreting the parable, makes clear that the seed of the parable is the word of God, or verse 19, the word of the kingdom. And the seed landing on soil is like the hearing of that seed, hearing of that word. And so the soils are different kinds of hearers. The sower in the parable, though it's not explicit, the sower has to be first and foremost Jesus. He's the one who's been doing all the seeding in recent days, as Matthew records things for us. And yet, Matthew's account of Jesus' life and death will end with a what we call a great commission, right? Where Jesus tells his disciples to take the good news 
of the gospel into all the world, to make disciples of all nations. And so by extension, Jesus' followers will eventually be sowers like he's been. So Jesus gives this parable in part so that his followers would know what to expect when they are sowing seed in the world. There will be different kinds of hearers out there. You will see different responses, some negative, some positive. It's the same as what has been played out in Jesus' sowing as Matthew has recorded it and in what will come after this. That's another purpose for this parable. It's to explain what is going on and to explain who in the story is what. What kind of soil are they? But maybe most fundamentally, the purpose of this parable is something very personal for us. We should ask, what kind of hearer am I? How am I hearing these days or not hearing? Have I heard and received, welcomed the word into my life? Where do I stand? And that's not just a matter for when we first become Christians. It's not just a matter for knowing whether we're on the inside with Jesus or not, but it's a matter that is day in and day out for Jesus' disciples. People who need to keep hearing and keep receiving and keep heeding. So let me make this point up front really clear because I think this parable is often misunderstood. Here's how most of us have heard this parable taught that it provides a, a diagnostic tool to know whether we are truly followers of Jesus or not. And so the teaching goes that there are three soils that don't, in the end, endure, and hence are not saved, but there's the fourth soil, and that represents those who are saved, who are heaven-bound. So the parable provides like a, a taxonomy, a categorization of different responses to the gospel, and hence different eternal conditions for those who respond to the gospel. Sort of like a, an illustration of 2 Corinthians 13.5 that you should examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. Now, I believe all that. I think all that's true. I think that approach to the parable is not wrong. But if that's all the parable is for, it has very limited utility. I think it also provides warning to professing believers to keep listening, to keep hearing, to keep receiving, to keep heeding God's word. I think it's, it's a warning to us about seasons and moments in our lives where we're acting second soil or third soil. 
So yes, a diagnostic tool to know who is really a Christian and who is not, but also a daily reminder of the ongoing need to hear and heed God's word, an ongoing warning for Christians to not be hard-hearted or shallow or distracted by other things, but to be receptive and fruitful. So let's work through each of these four soils. There's the first soil, which Jesus calls the path. And this describes the hard-hearted. The hard-hearted. Seed that lands on the path is like one who, verse 19, hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. The evil one, the devil, comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. The word of the kingdom. Again, that's the summary of Jesus' message, a summary of his teaching. The word of the kingdom is the good news that the king has come and is establishing a spiritual kingdom of followers and worshipers, and he brings this kingdom together and the citizens of the kingdom in through his death and resurrection specifically. The good news is not just that there is a king and there is a kingdom, but that you can get in on it on account of Jesus' cross and resurrection. That's where the story is going. As Jesus will put it in Matthew 20, verse 8, the meaning of the cross is that there would be a payment, a ransom. He laid his life down as a ransom for sins. He died in our place. And it's on that basis that he welcomes people in, like he did in Matthew 11. Come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He can offer that rest because he's done the work. I wonder how that message hits you today. The reality of these four soils is being played out in real time here this morning. So if you hear that word of the kingdom that I just described from Matthew 11 and Matthew 20, verse 28, and the cross and resurrection at the end of the story, if you hear all that, it's possible it just bounces right off you. It just goes in one ear and out the other. I might as well have said fish is half off at Costco this week. Remember, the word is like a seed that lands on different kinds of soils. And it's possible that your soil is hard. Like a, a well-worn path where feet and, and carts and an animal, livestock, have trod for years. It's possible the seed just lands on your heart and it sits on the top. And now it's ripe for the devil to take it away. Like a bird would come and take away seed that lies on the surface of a ground. Now, I hope that isn't you. I hope it doesn't continue to be you. 
But I'm not all that surprised if some here would have to admit, yeah, I don't understand. And whatever seed you're throwing today, yeah, it's not going in. It's not going deep down. If that's you, don't stay there. Open your heart to this message today. Keep asking questions. Keep being around Jesus' teaching. Keep looking till you see. Keep listening till you hear. Fellow Christians, don't be surprised when the seed of the word bounces off the forehead of your loved ones and neighbors. Don't think that it's a problem of the seed. There is nothing wrong with the seed. It's a matter of the soils. Pray for God to till soil. Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 3 that he planted and Apollos watered, but it was God who gave the increase. And let's remember that though these soils are a good diagnostic tool to know whether you're in with Jesus or not, they are also a warning for any time the word comes our way. It is possible some Sunday mornings to let the sermon, the word, bounce right off you. We've all done it, right? I hope you're not of the first soil type as a whole. But I have no doubts there are some Sundays you act just like first soil stuff. Don't be hard-hearted. Be receptive to the word. Then there's the second soil, the rocky ground, which describes the shallow. Verse 20, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Now, when this describes someone's overall experience with Jesus, we call this apostasy. Apostasy, a big word. It means literally to fall away. And it's not that true believers ever fall away from the faith. That's just so clear in other passages like Romans 8, that those whom he justified, he glorified. But apostasy is when a professing Christian comes to show that they never really had the real deal to begin with. They prove that because they turn from Christ and turn to sin or turn to another gospel, turn to heresy, and that persists over time to such a degree that it proves that this wasn't just a temporarily bad season, but this was their overall direction, despite an earlier season of initial excitement about Jesus. The classic passage describing this is 1 John 2.19. 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not of us. 
If they had been of us, they would have no doubt continued with us. But they went out from us so that it may be shown they weren't of us. Well, that's second soil stuff. That's rocky ground. It's when someone has a positive response to the gospel, perhaps even gets baptized and joins a church, perhaps even appears to walk with Jesus for a good bit of time, but at some point they grow disillusioned with it all, so they say. Maybe they say, I thought Christianity would solve all my problems, but I still have problems. Or maybe they say, I didn't realize persecution was part of the package deal. And they throw in the towel. They walk away. They fall away. Literally, they, they are scandalized. That's the Greek word for falling away. They, they prove to be shallow. Maybe they received the word for shallow reasons, and now they walk away from the word for shallow reasons. It's absolutely heartbreaking to watch this second soil stuff play out before our eyes. But it will. It will. We will baptize some people. We will have some in our community groups who were so encouraged by for a time and then were so heartbroken by the fact that they just walked away. How do you explain it? Well, it's second soil. It's second soil stuff. Don't be surprised. Don't think something's wrong with the seed. Don't think the sower is inadequate. Christian brother or sister, do you know that you have the responsibility to not be shaken in your trials, but to keep believing? You need to keep hearing, keep receiving, and keep heeding the word, especially in times of difficulty. Remember that one of these four soils will best describe your overall spiritual life, By the end of your life, you will prove to be one of these kinds of soils. But but remember as well, Mr. Fourth Soil, Mrs. Fourth Soil here, remember as well that you're not to think that you can't have moments or days or seasons of acting second soil. Even the apostle Peter did He denied his Lord three times in the face of persecution. So let Peter's denials and let second soil remind you to not be shaken by problems and persecution. Then there's the third soil, thorny ground. This describes what we would maybe call the distracted. The distracted. If second soil stuff is threatened by problems and persecution, then third soil is threatened by pleasures and prosperity. Verse 22, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Judas 
proves to be a classic example of this sort of soil when he betrayed his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. In other gospel accounts, it's the rich young ruler who went away sad because Jesus told him to sell all that he had and give it to the poor. He went away sad because he was very rich and he was not about to give it up. Here in the U.S., in the 21st century, where persecution for now is relatively little, not absent, but relatively little compared to other countries and other times. And here in the U.S., where the allure of prosperity is so great, it's, it's surely the latter, it's prosperity, that is the greater threat to our perseverance. So do you know? Do, do you keep reminding yourself of this? That wealth has inherent temptations to it and potential dangers. Yes, God gives us freely all things to enjoy. Yes, many of God's faithful saints in the Bible were quite wealthy. We don't believe in asceticism. We don't believe in vows of poverty. But are we aware of the fact that the love of money and the pursuit of wealth can actually wreck a faith? It can choke out the word. It can, in the end, prove us to be unfruitful. The Apostle Paul summarized it so powerfully in 1 Timothy 6. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. No, money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is. Have we forgotten that? Are we feeding our appetite for stuff? Or are we feeding our appetite for the word? And then there's the fourth soil. The good soil. We can call these people the fruitful. Or the receptive and fruitful. Verse 23 the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. This is who we want to be. This is what we want to see more of. We want to, we want to be, we want to see those who are hearing the word, understanding it, applying it, and bearing fruit from it. Now notice we won't all bear the same amount of fruit. Some do grow in their faith more quickly and more solidly than others do. That's fine. We shouldn't be surprised by that. We shouldn't be bothered or envious by others who have a greater degree of fruit. And yet we should also not be shaken when there are some spells in our lives when there is less fruit than there has been. 
some seasons of dryness. Jesus isn't here describing fruit and growth that is constant and steady or on this, this upward trajectory on a straight line that is graphed. No, the reality of the Christian life is more, uh, more complicated and nuanced than that. We do have ups and downs in the Christian life. So we shouldn't be overly concerned when there are seasons where fruit seems light and hard to produce. But neither should we be complacent about bare minimum fruit, as if we're just hoping to get the C- minus and pass the class. Christians grow. And this is what the seed does. This, when it hits good soil, it, it grows. It bears fruit. It blossoms. That's, that's what it's supposed to do. That's what it does. And we grow by the word. By the word, not something else. Not some other secret. Not some 12-step program. It's by the word. As we hear it and receive it and seek to understand it and desire to live it, we bear fruit. So I ask you, are you of this fourth soil? Is this what generally, not perfectly, but generally describes your life compared with the other three? Have you received the word? Do you understand it? And have you begun to see it start to bear some fruit in your life? I hope so. And if so, then keep giving yourself to this word. That means you need the Bible as a regular intake in your life, not just on Sundays. You need to take in the seed of the word regularly. It's like milk, like babies desire milk and they grow thereby. So we, we grow with the milk of the word. We must feed on it. We must come on Sundays ready to receive it as best we can with hearts tilled, ready for seed to fall in that it might bear fruit once again. And as that word so fills our hearts and forms our lives, may it also flow out of us to others. So let us join Jesus out in the fields of this world, throwing seed wherever we can, far and wide. We don't know where it will land. We don't know what kind of soil they are or he is, or she is. But God knows, and we seed. We just throw the seed indiscriminately, and we can be assured some won't like it. Some will like it eh, for a time and then prove they really never liked it. And some will take it in. It'll be the real deal. And we'll see lives changed. And we'll walk together as seeds and sowers in his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for you sowing 
seed in our hearts, and we pray that you will be active here this morning to fertilize ground, to till it up, to put seed in hearts and lives. And may it bear fruit today. We trust you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.